Good morning, Covenant College. You can wave. It's good to see you. Uh, it's really an honor and a joy to be able to stand before you on a really spectacular, glorious Wednesday morning. And it, it doesn't really take a lot to look around and recognize that we're living in weird and challenging times. But I think that you know, I hope you know, uh, that it's a small miracle that we're able to be here at all. So I, on behalf of the faculty, I just want to say a quick thank you to uh, administrators and staff members who worked tirelessly and had a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of anguish to make all of this possible. It's really remarkable that we can be here. And I, uh, I'm, I kind of stand in awe, so I wanted to say thank you for that. But I also want to thank you all. Thank you for being here. Thank you for enduring the difficulties that come from just getting from one place to another and from, you know, being in chapel. I recognize that it is difficult, but I'm, I'm grateful beyond words. So really on behalf of the faculty, I want to say thank you to you. Today's chapel is the first of several faculty exhortations that you'll hear this fall. Each year when I have the privilege of organizing faculty chapels, I try to think of a theme or a question we can use to frame the discussions we'd like to have with you. As you know, 2020 has been a year unlike any we've experienced. It feels important that we, as your faculty, take some time to reflect on what we're learning and how we're changing through it all. I've asked several faculty members this semester to reflect on what I learned over my summer vacation, recognizing that there really wasn't much of a vacation in any of it. But we're having an opportunity to give kind of some space to process their thoughts and emotions and an effort we hope to help you do the same. Over the past six months, we've seen a deadly virus seize and upend the lives of people living on every corner of the world, leading to government-mandated shutdowns, hundreds of thousands of deaths, the collapse of our national and global economies, and the cancellation of sports seasons, graduations, summer internships, and jobs, study abroad excursions, family reunions, weddings, and far too many other planned gatherings to count. Disappointment after disappointment. We spent many hours in front of screens trying to manufacture some kind of human connection. Online learning, virtual church, Zoom baby showers, Google Meet birthday parties, and drive-by wedding celebra celebrations have become the norm. Mask mandates and embittered anti-maskers, furloughs and layoffs, bankruptcies, solitary hospital stays, evictions and mortgage defaults, sick, dying and dead family members, loneliness, isolation, abuse, and myriad other mental health calamities. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that I found myself over these months reduced to tears nearly once a day. And I know I'm not alone. As you also know well, this global health and economic catastrophe unfolded amid an intense and unrivaled season of rancor and polarization in our country. 
anger and indignation over competing values, public health policies, virtue and leadership, and strategies for governing have divided families, friend groups, and even churches. The national presidential election cycle has cast a hot white light on these deepening divisions, pressing everyone further into their respective corners. Long before the plague of COVID-19 entered the scene, this brewing bitterness of cultural conflict was already deeply entrenched, threatening to tear us all to shreds. And then of course, on top of it all, we all bore witness this summer to the shocking and horrendous murders of Ahmaud Aubrey, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor, among others, forcing us all to re-examine or perhaps examine for the very first time the long history and systematic patterns of racial injustice that African Americans and other people of color living in the U.S. experience in very personal ways day after day after day. An astonishing outpouring of anguish and heart-wrenching cries for justice led in the following days to what many observers have described as the greatest social movement of political protest in world history. Tens of millions took to the streets in towns and cities, not just throughout the U.S., but around the globe, demanding a public recognition of 400 years of racialized violence and cruelty, demanding a re-examination of policing policies and procedures, demanding public accountability for racial profiling and targeting, and demanding recognition of a broken system of justice, justice that disproportionately targets black and brown men and women. Well, a significant study released last week reported that 93% of related protests this summer were conducted peacefully. There were in the midst of that a dis distressing scenes of rioting, looting, and violence in our streets, casting aspersions on the majority, exercising their constitutional rights while further fraying our already tattered social fabric. The events and circumstances of 2020 so far have dealt a series of wicked body blows to our nation and our world. Tensions are high, anger is at a fever pitch, despair runs deep, uncertainty feels boundless, patience is dwindling as is public trust and hope. Hope sometimes feels like something we only used to talk about. So what, we can, so what can we say in the midst of all this darkness and chaos? What did we learn over our summer vacations? I'm not going to here try to explain, interpret, or even directly address the global pandemic, our political polarization, or this moment in our nation's racial history. This morning, I want to instead focus on what I see as one of the peculiar dangers each of us lives with amid this vexing and anxiety-ridden moment. In times such as these, I believe each of us is tempted to run towards simplistic explanations that attempt to resolve and even deny the inherently complicated features of the world in which we live. 
Rather than trying to navigate the tangled thicket of our ever more challenging conditions, we're too easily drawn to simple answers and familiar sounding solutions, easy narratives that validate and vindicate our already settled opinions about the way things are. As each of us process what's happening around us, yearning to settle our restless spirits, our minds and our hearts too often seek consolation in easy to swallow explanations that reinforce comfortable and familiar platitudes. We're longing for clarity and for consolation. And we're very often quick to find it by listening only to the reassuring sounds of well-known voices. Simplistic stories that paper over deep and messy realities. We need to work harder we need to do better. My challenge to you this morning would no doubt be easier to speak and to hear in stable and happy times, but far more important to heed in moments like this. As you pursue your education here at Covenant and strive to walk faithfully amid turbulent times, make it one of your highest aims to tolerate complexity. That's it. My challenge to you is to tolerate complexity. You will no doubt have additional goals for your education as you well should, but please do not neglect this one. Tolerate complexity. If you intend to take your time here seriously among the most important things you will gain from the rigorous and biblically grounded liberal arts education we're seeking to foster here are hearts and minds that have developed a capacity for staring unblinkingly at the complex realities that are a fundamental part of the world in which we live. <clears throat> I won't promise that doing so won't leave you feeling aggravated, frustrated, and unsettled. I'm actually sure that it will. But having hearts and minds devoted to engaging our hurting world with truthfulness and honesty leaves, with, leaves us with no good alternatives. A central text that I'd like to, us to meditate on a bit this morning comes from that great 20th century American theologian, F. Scott Fitzgerald. If you're taking notes, please note in the margins that he's not an actual theologian. In an essay he wrote in 1936 for Esquire magazine aptly titled The Crack Up, Fitzgerald noted that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. In this astute observation, Fitzgerald has captured a handy way of illustrating what it might look like to tolerate complexity. Holding two seemingly opposed ideas at the same time, resisting the impulse to choose one over the other, but allowing both to rest, perhaps uncomfortably, in our minds and on our hearts without rejecting either of them. 
We live in a world of such tensions. How do we learn to live with them without feeling the need always to resolve them? How do we, as a good friend of mine once put it, learn to embrace such tensions? Well, studying history has given me some practice at doing just this. Every time I explore the intellectual history of Western civilization, I'm reminded of its powerful contributions to institutions that promote individual dignity and human progress, scientific inquiry, the rule of law, the inalienable rights of humankind, and procedural justice. And when I'm reflecting on these glorious leg legacies, I must simultaneously take note of the many ways in which this same Western civilization has been a preeminent engine in world history of social inequality, of racialized violence, and of the economic exploitation of the world's non-Western people. Holding two ideas in the mind at the same time, I gradually learn to tolerate complexity. I might also observe that Christian churches have historically functioned as sites of the most genuine hope for the world's downtrodden, marginalized people by faithfully preaching the full gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. But I also must recognize Christian churches have simultaneously aided and abetted some of the most horrendous practices of segregation, exclusion, enslavement, and violence in world history, while at other times standing by silently and approvingly while such atrocities happen. Holding two ideas in my mind at the same time, I learn to tolerate complexity. And yet again, I might note that I clearly see that the United States of America has been for many a free and egalitarian society filled with opportunity and promise and has extended the promise of liberty to people around the world. But it doesn't escape my attention that the United States has also been a society riddled with social and racial inequality where young black men and women have good reason to fear for their safety and no longer expect equal justice under the law. Holding two ideas, two opposed ideas in mind at the same time, I practice the painful art of tolerating complexity. By urging a tolerance for complexity, it's important that you hear me when I say that I'm not recommending that we condone or justify evil. I'm merely urging that we create spaces that allow the reality of two opposed ideas to reside in our minds at once, seeking neither to resolve the tensions that emerge when we do nor to choose the stories we prefer over the stories that make us squirm. Evil and good in this world dwell together in an intermingled state. Tolerating complexity is a necessity if we ever hope to live truthfully in this world. 
It's for this reason, among others, that we at Covenant organize our curriculum around the liberal arts. Liberal learning pushes us to explore an ever-widening and often strange array of human experiences, many of them far different from our own. Broadening our conception of what it means to be human, the goal of the liberal arts is to build in each of us dispositions like caution, prudence, empathy, patience, discernment, and wisdom. Using these virtues to see in the world more than we could possibly have imagined at first glance. When I went off to college as an 18-year-old, my own vision of the world was pretty small. And my personal access to the broad range of human experience was limited at best. Interestingly enough, these limitations actually emboldened me with a disposition of self-confidence and smugness. My friends will tell you that hasn't entirely gone away. My induction into liberal learning compelled me, however, to undertake careful investigations of literature and art, science and history, psychology and economics, philosophy and linguistics. I read books, I debated ideas, I had conversations with people living and dead whose experience was were so different from my own. My ability to listen and to see did begin to grow. And my certainty in my own simplistic ways of conceiving the world grew kind of shaky. Little by little, my imagination began to expand, creating new spaces for the curiosity, self-criticism, restraint, and charitable listening. These are just a handful of the wondrous tools needed for tolerating complexity. Please note that I still have a long way to go. But the efforts I made in this direction continue to sit atop the liberal arts education that I was blessed to receive. Over the years, I've seen thousands of students come here to Covenant and undertake a very similar journey. And I think my colleagues will agree with me when I say that watching them do so, watching you do so, is one of the greatest thrills of teaching at a place like this. And what's even more thrilling is the ways in which you, in turn, help me and us tolerate complexity. I hope you can see why it remains so important to protect the ideals like open and the free exchange of ideas. It's that liberality of discussion and reflection that puts the liberal in liberal arts. Don't give up on it. Openness to academic inquiry and free speech is foundational to any pursuit of truth. And this kind of openness is actually being threatened on college campuses today across the country. We need to do all we can to protect it and to nurture it here. 
I need to tell you that leaning into the complexities of the world isn't necessarily in fashion among all Christian believers today. One of the great misfortunes of contemporary American evangelicalism is that so many of its leaders send the exact opposite message to us as they urge us to read the world in easy and predictably simplistic ways designed to help us justify what we're already inclined to believe and to preserve our place in an artificial world populated by characters wearing only black hats and white, good guys and bad. While claiming to affirm the truth of the Bible, many of them seem to suggest that God's word is a simple book filled with simple answers. Don't you believe it? While the author of, offer of our father's embrace to sinners through Jesus may be a message simple enough for small children to understand, it doesn't follow that the scriptures paint a simplistic picture of the world and of the human condition. They do not. Let me be clear, I don't advocate the virtue of tolerating complexity only because it fits in the mission of the liberal arts. I advocate the virtue of tolerating complexity because scripture is brimming with nuanced insights and dense portrayals of the human condition that demand that we take the world's complexities with deadly seriousness. University of Pennsylvania law professor David Skeel recalled his first careful study of the Bible as a skeptical college English major. He was reading through the book of Genesis to become better acquainted with biblical allusions found in great English literature. About halfway through, he became convinced that, he was that what he was reading was actually true. And the thing that convinced him that of that was that the world the Bible presented to him was filled with three-dimensional, flesh-and-bone, deeply flawed human beings. I had never read anything so beautiful, so psychologically real, wrote Skeel. Any book that doesn't look like the world we inhabit, I don't find compelling. The flaws made it real to me, continued Skeel. And that's still a big part of what makes it real. That Peter renounced Jesus before he was willing to give up his life for Jesus. Those are people I understand. The scriptures seem to take his life and his world quite seriously. And it moved him. Some of you, I am certain, have found yourselves on the verge of abandoning Christian faith altogether because you've come to believe that it isn't capable of accounting for and understanding the chaos you've experienced in your lives and the turbulence that you observe in the world. Perhaps you surmise the Bible made sense for simpler people living in simpler times, dealing with simpler problems. But this is the 21st century. We're living in a freaking global pandemic. Well, let me tell you pointedly, if you believe that, I think you've underestimated the depth and complexity that reside in the Christian scriptures. Now hear me clearly when I tell you that I'm not suggesting that you take the Bible 
to say whatever you wanted to say so that you can get it to validate your own choices. Far from it, actually. If that were true, it wouldn't be much of a lifeline in the midst of a dark and a broken world. But hear this. Christianity's capacity for understanding and enduring the complexities of our world is likely much greater than you've imagined it to be. My urgent plea to tolerate complexity is, I believe, a deeply biblical one. The Bible takes the world seriously, and I think you should too. Rather than being a source of simple, straightforward, predictable answers, the Holy Scriptures regularly invite us to hold two opposed ideas in our heads at once. In fact, the Bible makes little sense apart from its many paradoxes. We see unseen things. We conquer by yielding. We find rest under a yoke. We reign by serving. We are made great by becoming small. We are exalted when we are humbled. We become wise by being fools for Christ. We are made free by becoming enslaved. We become strong when we are weak. We live by dying. If we aren't still regularly bewildered by what we read in the Bible, we probably need to go back and read it again. God's living word constantly upends our expectations and causes us to re-examine our lives and our world anew. It shouldn't surprise us that within the Christian tradition we see ongoing, seemingly endless debates arising from key tension points that are on their face irresolvable. Free will versus divine sovereignty, law versus grace, freedom of conscience versus Christian duty, just war versus pacifism, submission to the state versus civil disobedience, faith versus works, the sacred versus the secular, the already versus the not yet. Our world as it happens is a beautiful, grotesque, shambolic mess of a place. Scripture reliably and faithfully leads us into the tension we find there, not away from it. In the end, we place our hope not in our abilities to smooth over or resolve these tensions. We find our hope only in resting in the faithful arms of Jesus our Lord, who promised in the midst of it all that he would never leave us, nor forsake us. So what do we do in order to become the kinds of Christ followers prepared to tolerate complexity? F. Scott Fitzgerald spoke of the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time as a test of a first-rate intelligence. Maybe he was right, I don't know. But I wonder if it might be better for us to think of it in our context, not as a test of intelligence, but of spiritual maturity. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't claim to have any special powers of knowing the hearts or inner lives of my brothers and sisters. But when I hear Paul's exposition of the Spirit's fruit in Galatians 5, 
I'm reminded of just how much the tenacity required to face the heart truths of our age rest on the work of the Spirit. Like the recipients of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we need to move on from milk to solid food. Let me close with just four ways that I pray the Spirit would be work, at work among us to do just that. First, with the Spirit's help, I believe we need to cultivate awe. In an age soaked in cynicism, we are too rarely rendered silent in the face of the sheer intricacies of the world as we find it. Psychologists Lisbeth Belthamy and Jose Corliza define awe as a mix of fear and respect toward nature, which is experienced as much larger than ourselves. As you've probably learned from experience, the more you study a given subject, the more you come to know how little you actually understand it. Awe is a good but painful emotion. We are but dust and to dust we shall return. In our smallness, as we stand to confront the great expanse of all human experience, generous doses of fear and respect do wonders for our urges to pass easy judgments or to offer simplistic explanations. We really just need to shut up, right? To shut up and allow the complexity of it all to wash over us. Second, with the Spirit's help, I think we need to commit ourselves to the practice of charitable listening. When we enter into conversations with others, especially others with whom we disagree, let's do so genuinely believing that we have important things to learn from them, from their experiences, from their insights. Let's extend to others enough honor and dignity to believe that they have good and important things to teach us. After we have shut up, let's listen well. Third, may the Spirit help us to resist the lure of tribal loyalties. We're apt to find echo chambers of tribal loyalty in many different places where simplistic narratives and familiar-sounding platitudes promise falsely to satisfy our spirits. But I sometimes wonder if social media might not have been the special invention of the devil himself that he uses to keep our itching ears listening only to the voices of our tribe, to easy messages that reinforce confidence in what we've already believed to be the case. Fourth and finally, may the Spirit develop in us a habit of repentance. This past summer, a group of thoughtful Covenant College students and alumni wrote some letters and online posts in the wake of George Floyd's brutal murder. In these venues, they spoke of the many challenges of being non-white while living and learning on this overwhelmingly white campus. They reflected on painful encounters, demeaning and hurtful comments, 
and indignities small and large. Reading over these I, revealed to me a grave need in my own life and the life of our community for repentance. Not repentance for being white. No, that isn't nearly strong enough. Perhaps in our whiteness, we failed to cultivate awe when thinking about the diversity and the beauty of the human experience. Perhaps in our privilege, we failed to practice charitable listening to the stories and challenges of our brothers and sisters. And perhaps in our blindness, we've been content to toil within the, our tribal echo chambers where we remain happily indifferent to the cries of the beaten down and the forgotten. In the end, our failure to tolerate complexity is a spiritual problem. May the spirit work among us to open our eyes and to make us more like Jesus. Pray with me. Our good and gracious God, our souls are weary and our hearts are hard. We confess that we are tempted to see your world not as, it, not as it is, but in ways that confirm our own biases and conform to our own preferences. Forgive us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.